call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 127 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Richie, and my co-host, Anna Katirnan, watch two crime films from the 1970s. 1976's Mikey and Nicky and 1973's The Friends of Eddie Coyle. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call It Friendo Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations and find me on Letterboxd at Andy. DCIF pod who's you haven't been doing much going outside hell no that's for losers stay inside no gigs, I say. no cinemas no gigs no cinemas i'm gonna go see napoleon mm-hmm. at some point this weekend i'm looking forward to that Ridley yeah. Scott says it's good. He says French people hate themselves, and they're wrong, and they're idiots. So it's why good. Are, do they, are the French uh, shitting on it? I believe so. They're, in France, it's called le shitting on it. Okay, are, are they le shitting on it? I believe so. I believe they they might. I, there's been a couple of comments of people saying it's weird that people are all speaking English in a film about Napoleon. Oh well, they can just shove that up their jap side. Quite frankly, go and make your own movie if you want. I think that's a redundant complaint. It's like when people were complaining about the series Chernobyl. It's like, well, you know, the the Ukrainians were welcome to make it if they wanted. Um, but what other complaints have they got? You were in Chernobyl as well. I think that was, yeah, that was the main complaint. You, you I remember when you hung yeah, yourself. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I did. I hung Chernobyl. myself. Also Spoilers in Mad Men, your life. I, hung, yeah, I yes. hung myself. You love killing yourself in TV. No, on both occasions, I was attempting to whack off, actually. <laughs> That's the one thing they never understood about Jared Harris's characters. Yeah, yeah. He's just really into autoerotic <laughs> asphyxiation. <laughs> I've uh, never put ever that see- together before that he's killed. He's done that twice. You ever see major um, series? You ever see that Norm bit? No. There are there are two reasons that a man will hang himself by the neck. One is to escape this hellish charade we call a life, and the other is to whack off. Yeah. They call it autoerotic asphyxiation, but don't it's a big fancy word, but it's a filthy thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, I I mean I'm gonna wade cautiously into the movies we had to watch because I'm I'm optimistic. Okay. But have you watched anything else this week that you would like to talk about? I've got one TV series, I got one rewatch of a film, and I've got two computer games. Okay. I have Two rewatches of films that kind of slot together, so I'll talk about them together. Bit of autobiographical detail in those, oh, and then nice. I'm going to uh, I'm going to fire you back my opinions on something you watched very recently. Yes. So you go first. Well, as I mentioned uh, on here before, Scott Pilgrim versus the World is one of my favorite films. That's right. It's one of your go-to recommendations. It is. I, I, at the moment on Letterboxd, I have my four favorite films. is Scott Pilgrim, You Were Never Really Here, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, nice. and Pan. Okay. Wait, big victories for the, for the podcast there, yeah, I see. Two of those are th- things that I want to say you picked. Yes. Pan and Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Those were your choices. So, that, yeah, they're two of my favorite films. They're up there. You're welcome, Sausage. Good you films can only that put... you've given me. Hmm. Um, One Night in Paris um, was pretty good. What was the other one? Uh, Black Knight. I think that was my choice. Black Knight was good. Somersault. <laughs> was. I quite liked Somersault, actually. Uh, uh, Joanna Man. That was, must have been mine. Joanna Man was classic. Joanna you Man. came up with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Do you want a man is uh, the film that I watched um, the week my daughter was born in hospital <laughs> with her on my lap. <laughs> and you were just thinking, oh, my with God, her, she's going to be in the WNBA one day. With her mother in the in the ICU and me yeah. sitting there going, wow, what's going to be the future of my family? And I was like, let's put on Joanna Man, followed yeah, by Blade 2. <laughs> Similar. Film. I believe that's the sequel. I also watched the documentary about Patrice O'Neill while in the hospital. Anyway. Tell so me anyway, I'm a huge fan of the Edgar Wright film. That's the main mm. point. Uh, understandably, excellent. when I heard there was a new animated series on Netflix, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, written by Brian Lee O'Malley and featuring the voices of the original cast, I was Every excited single one. Yeah. to check it out. Every single one. I must ask you, have you read the comic books? No. I've looked oh, at it and thought that would be good, but it requires reading and actually doing stuff. Uh, they're very good. Then you, f- sure you fly I would like through that. them. I read all volumes of it in in a bookshop. Pro- no, it's a bookshop where I you used bastard. to purchase a lot, but comics are expensive, so I just used they to are. sit down and just fly through those. Anyway, continue. The series is neither a sequel to the film nor an adaptation of the comic book series. It's probably best described as a what-if scenario. In this case, what if Matthew Patel had beaten Scott Pilgrim in the first showdown and Ramona was left to pick up the pieces? Whoa, okay, that's kind of interesting, I suppose. I have to say, I thought this was just an adaptation of the comics, which I was really looking forward to, and I preferred that scenario than the one you've just named. So let's hear it. Series is eight episodes long. I made it as far as episode three before I gave up. Oh, really? It's one that of bad. those. Yeah, sorry. Problems. Uh, it's not particularly funny. I'm guessing Edgar Wright and Michael Bacall had little to no input despite being named as uh, executive, executive producers. Produce, yeah. Michael Bacall wrote the Jump Street films, which were excellent. And obviously yeah, Edgar yeah. Wright has got a few classics of his own. Uh, the voice actors. So many of the bigger stars phoned it in, possibly literally. Kieran Culkin is so flat. It's like he's completely forgotten what made Wallace work as a character. All the best Big thing Plaza, in the movie, I would say. Schwartzman, Chris Evans, all very poor. The people who come out of it well are Satya Baba, who plays Matthew Patel, Ellen Wong, who was Knives, and uh, the great Mae Whitman, who's as Anne as the nose on Plane's face. Basically, the people who needed the work showed up, and the big stars were yeah. just shy. Also, I think Any- some people are like have a voice for voice acting. I mean, it's clearly a completely different well, yeah. skill than acting. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But it's just, it's weird that some of the characters, you know, the actors who desperately needed work were like, have happened to be really good at it, almost as though they prepared and put a lot into it. Yeah, uh, I, I see a lot of people, I, I must come up with the name of this category of film. There is... I, I think Josh Whedon used to be in this category before everybody uh, found out that stuff about him being mean. Until he got um, Josh Whedon. There are that was his kink. Certain, like if you tickle the nerd clitoris a certain way, if you're able to do, to really get to the browning noise of the nerd, they'll forgive you for anything. And I think Scott Pilgrim is just so one of those because I've seen really good reviews for this. And I honestly, I believe the reviews. I was going to watch it, but I much <laughs> I much more believe you in this scenario. I think the fan um, score is a lot more negative than the review score. It's one of those like the audience. Oh, right. Really? OK, OK. Negative, I think so. I've seen a lot of like it's hard because I've seen a lot of one stars, but I think so, a lot of that is just like, well, there's no Scott Pilgrim. Where did Scott? Why is it called Scott Pilgrim? He's barely in it. Is he barely in it? 
Oh, very mild spoilers, but he gets transported away to like another to like a, a multiverse or whatever. I think he comes back and there's a multiverse. Come on, Some lads! Fucking bullshit! Did you hear Marvel are uh, walking away from Kang the Conqueror? No, he was yeah. so good. It's yeah, so meaningful. Uh, I also didn't care for the music of Scott Pilgrim's Takes Off, which is a huge part of the film for me. This time round, it's provided by Anamana. Fuck, I don't even know how to say this name. Anamanaguchi. They're like one of those bands that uses like 8 bit Casio keyboards and stuff and goes like. They did the soundtrack to the Scott Pilgrim game as well, which I've never played because it looks shy. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I didn't care for the art style either. It's like old school anime, looks like it was made in the 70s. Not for me, guys. It's, this it all sounds no, very hipster. It is. And I thought hipster was a thing that died like at least 10 years ago, but no, apparently not. I uh, know it's still alive well in Bar- uh, in Barcelona. There's a restaurant near me that brings you um, your bill in a videotape cassette box. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Times ain't changed to, that much. I need to return some videotapes. So I, uh, whenever I go to Madrid, I'll always like drift away during family events because uh, not not for the whole thing i'm not i'm not that rude but um <laughs> sound like a psycho already no i'll just be I'd like go up to the upstairs sitting room and just uh and i know i'll usually be called back so what i tend to do is rather like rather than flicking around looking for something that i actually want to watch the full way through i always land on things that i've seen many times so i don't mind if i'm going to get called away from them and things that are full of set pieces so i can watch them in chunks you know what i mean What's an I, example of this? Or what's, well, what's I, well, I guess you're about to give me some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I think I, I only dawned on me at the weekend after I pressed uh, played on it. Uh, this was on Saturday. I think I've watched Mission Impossible Fallout in my in-laws house like five times because <laughs> it's it's so just digestible. It's just so easy to watch. And also then this weekend, followed it up later in the evening with Terminator 2. But it was a different thing because I actually managed to get the whole way through both of them in the sittings. People just didn't disturb me. It was great. <laughs> I actually came downstairs in the middle of Terminator 2 and they were all taking siestas. It was wonderful. I'm not even making that up except for Belen and her dad. But uh, anyway, so then, uh, yeah, just just a couple of things to say about uh, both of them, I suppose. Um, because I've seen them so many times now, they do benefit from the rewatch. Yeah, I think Fallout is just it's kind it's it's kind of perfect in in a lot of ways just the way every uh, what i'm basically saying is it's unsurprising to me that n- now that dead reckoning was so underwhelming because fallout just sort of seems like this is the reason why they kept switching directors in the franchise because it's the most that Christopher McQuarrie has to give to the franchise it's almost the most that anybody could give to the franchise every single action just moves the plot forward in lovely little ways and the characters interact perfectly to just inch the story along like at the start when Ving Rhames gets shot in the bulletproof vest and that's what causes them to lose the cores and then they get Henry Cavill on for the mission who you just know is a bad and straight away and I like I don't know it's <laughs> I've probably sung the praises of this film a few times before uh, on this podcast but then again I was just sitting there watching it going this is so fabulous and then the other thing is uh, about Terminator 2 is I just have a little daughter reaction story to tell much oh, like nice. yeah much like Borat there's no it. naked wrestling in this one well yeah exactly that, it, so I was there watching it and you know that really odd moment in the movie that 
it just sucks when you're a kid and most of the rest of it is actually okay for kids in my opinion when the a mental home nurse licks her on the face i haven't seen it for so long you've just brought that oh my god that's like a hidden core memory <laughs> yeah i can i can visualize it i haven't seen terminator yeah, 2 yeah, for he, ages he's got can, glasses yeah, goes, and yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's really it's, creepy yes and yeah then she batters so. him over the head with his own baton of half like about a minute later but then anyway oh man i didn't realize aaron had just walked into the room i'm there watching it and she goes uh <laughs> Papa, por qué la chupa? Like that. And it uh, made me laugh so much. And then I thought, oh, no, I actually can't watch this. And then I was like, because nah, me and Belen are already having this debate. I think certain types of violence, not like not OK for uh, kids. I think that anything that could be traumatic, like we were watching The Impossible on TV, the start of it the other day. <laughs> With a tsunami. <laughs> And we put, well, we, but no, we pressed pause before the tsunami yeah, because okay. we were like, okay, that's too, she could have a nightmare about that for sure. Definitely. But then something like, not Terminator 1, Terminator 1 would more because that's quite scary. But Terminator 2, I was thinking, Terminator 2 is actually, no, it's, it's kind of fun. I think you you're know? underestimating the impact of those images on a young kid. I'm just saying. Well, anyway, she watched about 20 minutes of it and then her mother was like, Donica, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sorry. But Aaron was transfixed by it. She was having a great time. I'm not surprised. That's uh, the skills of uh, a certain James Cameron. He knows what Yeah, he's yeah, doing. yeah. Unrecognizable in uh, for where he's gotten to these days. There's hardly any blue people in um, T2. Mm. I don't know if he blew people or not. Hey, oh. Anyway, what do you got? Well, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that I've been listening to the Blank Check podcast series on Mr. David Fincher which David led me Finches, to rewatching yeah. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Following mm -hmm. on from that, this week I rewatched Gone Girl for the first time since the cinema, nine years. I fucking love Gone Girl. That girl's gone. She's a what gone about you? girl. Well, okay, brief plot synopsis for anyone who hasn't seen Gone Girl. After a series of personal setbacks, both financial and familial, affable husband Nick Ben Affleck and aloof wife Amy Rosamund Pike have moved back to a small town in his native Missouri, where they now have an unhappy, a.k.a. normal marriage. When Amy <laughs> goes missing in suspicious circumstances, a whole shitstorm of media attention envelops Nick's world before things really start getting crazy. I think it's w interesting that I hadn't gone back to watch this at all in nine years. Go on. I think, um, I mean, I, I, it was a film that I liked watching, and rewatching, I thought it was excellent. Great performances throughout, as expected in a Fincher film. Tyler Perry is, you know, yeah, really like, good, I mean, right? It's shocking how good he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barney it's, Stinson. Yeah, Barney Stinson. And Nora from The Leftovers. Carrie Coon. Carrie Coon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Carrie. She Coon's gets the respect of her actual name, not yes. you, Barney Stinson. <laughs> no. Wow. <laughs> Very uh, satisfying when he gets murdered. He does. Spoilers. He, get, he gets. He gets drained. Uh, Have you ever read the book of this? No. Yeah, the the book I like I it was one of those ones I just ate it up, read it so fast, and even though it ends like the movie, I found that because it, okay, so it's told in diary format. It's either Nick's diary or Amy's diary, and then it, like sometimes you get a omniscient narrator, but uh, not much. Anyway, it ends pretty much the same way, but I, with the book, I just threw the fucking book at the wall. Because I just hated her so much, her character, even though I liked it most of the way through. But I think I, I, Fincher made me reevaluate the story, and actually, I quite liked it 
uh, and then like the book more retrospectively. So I had that to filter in my, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of this. I've gone back to this two or three times, I think. I mean, I, I had way more sympathy for Amy this time watching it. I mean, she's a psycho. Okay, clearly. Mm -hmm. But I did have a lot more sympathy for her. She'd been dragged to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, you know, Affleck had given up on her and he's cheating on her and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, I get it. I understand why she might not be happy. Can't really frame your husband for murder, though. There's other solutions, you know, let's kick him in the balls. Yeah. Something like that. Affleck is perfect to play that as well. Yeah. They it's both just, are. They're both great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah Everyone is indeed. good. Everyone is good. It's, it's another great uh, Reznor and Ross score. I think the main thing that I was thinking about this is just that, like, it was a $60 million budget. It's a film for mature audiences and it made over $350 million. Wow. It's like, this is, well, what, we, this is what we need. Yeah. I guess it was easy to sell, but still, it's like, you know, nowadays when Fincher's making something like The Killer, which I guess you might be talking about very shortly. I will. That's the kind of thing that, I mean, it's going on Netflix. It's not. Okay, what it's a for waste. a mature audience, but we're just not experiencing it at all in the same way. Anyway, no. tell me about that. About the killer. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll surprise you nothing to learn that uh, I fucking loved it. <laughs> but, um, I, like, I mean, as you to to quote yourself in it, like, I can't remember the last time I was so drawn in, start to finish, of the world of a movie. Like, and there's a, a fair few reasons for it. A lot of it is... Um, I mean, Fassbender's perfectly cast, so magnetic in the role, but and also, yeah, the the, the narration at the start is is strange because there's so much narration and it's just weird oh, sort it. of a, existential so stuff. No, but it's really good. It's really really good because none, almost none of it is plot related. It's just weird little observations that he has about life, and he's just walking around. I don't give a uh, fuck. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, and then. The story just starts when the assassination gets bungled up. And it is actually quite like a video game in that regard. You compared it to the Hitman games. I'd love to play this as a video game. But once it starts, then it becomes one of the most relentless action movies you'll ever see. But now, and this is, you see, I, I classify action films slightly differently, I suppose. Just plot that is driven by people doing things and i get it like you know fight scenes are included in an awful lot of action scenes but let's like all is lost the fucking what's his chops movie uh, robert redford yeah yeah what's the name of the director again jc chander he's jc chander jc chander's next film is craven the hunter oh no <laughs> i just saw a trailer for that in the cinema the other day oh how does it look i mean okay but awful okay Anyway, I mean, just, it, well, I mean, it's like visually it looks okay, but it looks, you know, ridiculous. It's about a fucking hunter guy that hunts, you know, superheroes. The killer does not stop from the moment the, you know, inciting incident is kicked off. And you get to just enjoy his methods and the fact that as it gets, as it goes, you can kind of predict how he's going to react in a certain situation. The violence is as shocking as it should be. When he guns down that cab driver, it's like, oh, Jesus. A lesser movie wouldn't have killed that cab driver. That cab driver was nice. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was That's really making a statement. Yeah, but of course he's going to fucking kill that cab driver. Yeah, he definitely is. Because he's a pro, because he's actually, you know, a proper hired assassin. And like, the, you know, I mean, there's nothing too surprising about the story. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's been told many other times. It's like, I don't give a fuck. Oh, wait, you touch something I give, I give a fuck about. I'm coming after you. 
all the um, rules everything that he's saying like all these rules that he has for himself are complete horseshit because he doesn't follow yeah, yeah. them at all it's just you know he says course, one yeah. thing but he does another I think Fassbender is great at like physical performances body performances he's I mean he must do yoga or something do you ever see his movie um, Frank no that's uh, where he puts on the uh, yeah oh it's great you should really watch that <laughs> I think you'd really, really That's like that. That's what's his name, Lenny... Lenny Abrahamson. Abrahamson, the guy who made Room. Yeah, I think you would really, really like that. It's all about music, for one thing, and like weird mental people making music. Hmm. Um, but you don't see Fassbender's face for most of the fucking movie. And just his movements, and like there's very much a performance in there. I saw lots of that in The Killer as well. As you said, I'll definitely be returning for to, for this. But yeah, I couldn't help but shake the feeling that it's like... What a bummer this is on Netflix. Like, you could be yeah. making so much money doing this a different way. Like, for real, you would I make... Know, but that's... Because those days are gone. I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think if this went out in the cinema, they wouldn't have to do half the marketing they do for a Marvel movie to get people interested. David Fincher will get enough sort of people interested. Michael Fassbender, the other way, they can market it direct as a as just an action movie or whatever, and people will go into it and be surprised. It would work. I don't know. It's just a pity to me. What's the, I want to see what the audience score is on this because I just wonder, I don't know. I feel like it might catch people the wrong way. I I just kind of feel like general audiences might. Yeah. Look, I mean, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, Tomatoes, the critic score is 85% positive and then the audience score is 60. I just feel like for audiences, it's a bit too obscure for the average audience. When you say audience, do you mean, do you mean ladies? No, not, but yes, but no, I mean, number, I, I'm assuming, I was assuming there was no ladies in the cinema. I was just talking about of all the guys who are in the cinema. Well, no, because that's what, like, I know my wife wouldn't dig this at all, but this is exactly the kind of thing that men dig. It's a guy being autistic and cerebral and violent and vengeful. Yeah, but it might be, it might be too on the spectrum for a lot of guys who are like, why is he not blowing things up? No, I don't think so. I mean, guys love fucking. Fight Club, for example. True. But Fight Club's easier than this. Do you think? It's not that the killer's complex. I just feel like... Do you not feel like... Okay, so the difference between 1999 and 2023 is like... Society has been fucking torn to pieces and social media has completely destroyed people's brains. Do you Mm. think that audiences can sit for like a reasonably slow-moving film... That is, you know, properly paced and doesn't you know have what? fucking things blowing up every three seconds. I genuinely think they do. I think just because people have been making dumber movies doesn't mean people are dumber. True. Um, I do, yeah, I'm not saying people are dumber, but I do think people have picked up bad habits. I know I have. I'm mm, looking at my phone too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair point. But I, I yeah, no, I would have uh, like confidence beyond that. I think uh, like. I mean, do you know what's do you know what sucks is like certain of the institutions have gotten uh, so messed up in terms of movie making. Peak among them is like film criticism because I see all these like like for example, just because it's so divided, you had all these people championing things like either it's either Sound of Freedom or the Marvels, and then <laughs> like across the, the board, two, those are the two films of twenty twenty three. Across the board, everybody's giving the killer three or four stars. And I've read I read some reviews for it. None of them with anything interesting to say about the movie. 
and you read the interview, like the interview, your average interview for the Marvels or Sound of Freedom is like a fucking essay because everybody wants to pile in on it. And I haven't seen the Marvels. But Sound of Freedom is a fucking dumb movie. I mean, it's not There's the worst thing in the world. Sound of, it's just empty. It's completely hollow, Sound of Freedom. It's pointless. Yeah, yeah. and it, 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 But, like, you can't help but hear all the fucking politics around sure, it. Sure. And you're just going... that, And that makes it extra kind of disappointing because you're like, this is what the fucking big deal is about? Jesus <laughs> yeah, exactly. Christ. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it just It's so silly. And a guy drinking too much fake whiskey. Anyway, that's all I got to say about The Killer, but people well, should really to... see it. I loved it. I just want to mention Graham Graham Rush for recommending it. Okay, I'm going to mention two games, but these two go. I've got a point to make that does lead into the two films that we're going to talk about. Outstanding. I played a couple of games. I'd like to shout out for the great narrative experiences they provided. First is 2019's Control from Finnish game studio Remedy, who are probably best known for the Max Payne games and Alan Wake. And some other shite, Quantum Break. Well, that had Aiden Gillen in it, Quantum Break. Just <laughs> imagine Aiden Gillen in a game. That's true. You could shoot him. Do narrative games have lots of cutscenes? Yes. They're mostly cutscenes, right? I wouldn't say mostly, but a lot. Okay. Just asking. I mean, when I say narrative game, I'm just mean like it's got a plot. It actually has a story to it. No, no, I know how they work. Did you ever play the Expanse one? No. I was considering it. It's got what's her name in it. Drummers doing the Kara yeah, it's, it's, G. It's mostly drummer, yeah. That's what I hear. Anyway, go and for it. You would like that because you were in the Expanse as well. Story wise, Control is like uh, the X Files <laughs> meets Twin Peaks. Yeah, so it's, it's the story of <laughs> yeah. this. Okay, so the game Control. It's a bit like it's kind of like X Files meets Twin Peaks. It's very weird and creepy throughout. You play Jesse, a woman who arrives at the headquarters of the FBC which is the Federal Bureau of Control, which is like the FBI of weird shit. And you're okay. there because you're following a telepathic message from an intelligence you came into contact with as a child that now lives in your head. And you're searching nice. for your brother, Dylan, who was kidnapped by the FBC when you were kids. So it's it's very weird. Uh, the game plays really well. It's very fun once you, you pick up new skills like telekinesis and you can fly around the room. And um, I think it would make a great film or show, but ultimately, is it even worthwhile doing that these days? Because I think The Last of Us show, I never ever think about that TV series. If I think about The Last of Us, I'd only ever think about the game. Mm. I just don't yeah. know if there's much point anymore in adapting a game. I think it's Hitchcock who said, like, you know, you can like you you can't make a great film out of a gr- out of a great book, but out of right, an average book, you, you can make a masterpiece. Before, yeah. And I think this certainly applies with with games because, like, as I think this as a format, if you can figure if you can figure out because for the type of games that you and I like now, by the way, like story heavy, not too difficult. Um, yeah. If you can figure out a good story to f- to fit in the format well, I mean, unless you're somebody who doesn't like to play games at all, it's hard to um, it's hard to picture that format being a superior way of taking in the story um i'm not saying it would be like so what i'm basically saying is masterpiece games certainly in terms of like if you're seeking to surpass the storytelling you're not going to do it if you're seeking to now like you know just expand it to a further audience which to be fair the last of us did um then yeah have at it the thing is with the last of us is i i'm 
kind of with you on it. Like I kind of, I almost had to force myself to watch the last few episodes because I mean, it's fabulously made. It really, really is. But uh, yeah, I just, yeah, it, it just took me back to the game and I kind of was yeah. like, I, I prefer to be playing the game. The exact same thing with the Witcher TV show. Uh, yeah. Whenever I was watching it, I was just going, ah, it'd be more fun to sort of play this. Yeah. So, I mean, I, this watching the, or playing this game made me think, you know, I'd like to watch a bit more surreal stuff over the next few weeks. I'm like, okay, I'm going to look for a bit more kind of Twin Peaksy things to watch. The other game I want to shout out is uh, a walking simulator from 2017. So there's not really, it's not really any gameplay to speak of. You're just kind of walking around and interacting with objects. And it's called What Remains of Edith Finch. And you just walk around. Yeah, so it doesn't really have gameplay to speak of. Uh, the entire game uh, is you controlling a 17-year-old girl who's returned to her family home in Can the you look at Pacific Northwest. You can't. You can't look down <laughs> like that, I'm afraid. You can't even get in the shower. That was the game. I just, just went in the shower. <laughs> no. Yeah, she's she, she goes back to her family home, which she has just inherited um, after the death of her mother and each room in the house is a shrine to a deceased member of the family and when you interact with an item you get like a little scene where you can move around and you find out how that family member died now quite a few of the members of this family were kids when they died and uh, those sections one involving a baby in a bathtub that i don't re- I, I don't recommend that one for you are extremely hard hitting, but also genius, like absolutely genius. There's another section which takes place in a fish cannery, which might be the single greatest narrative scene I've ever played in a game. I'm going to put the link to it in the show notes so you can just watch a video of it. Because even if you never play the game, it's like a 10 minute scene. You're this guy working in a cannery who's recently got sober. And so you're taking a fish and you're chopping its head off. And then it goes from there. And it's like a little 10 minute scene. It's like a little, they're like little short stories. So this is like very much, yeah, like a an, an interactive book of short stories, basically. Yeah, this, the game is like less than two hours long. Wow, but it's I didn't, genius. I had no idea people it were is, doing stuff is, like this. Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, this is from what, six years ago? It is genius. So I would, even if you never, ever play this game, I'd recommend watching this little cannery scene. Well, yeah, go ahead. Put it in the show notes. I'll check it out. But one of the reasons I brought all this up is because I think when we go back and look at the 70s, as we're doing this week, I feel like cinema was like the pinnacle of imagination and, and storytelling then. Whereas I think now so many films seem to be made for like a mass audience. And we're back to this question we were just talking about, like it's whether audiences have changed or things have changed. It's much easier to find niche stuff now when you play games rather than watching cinema. I think it's, uh, I think the, certainly when you talk, uh, look at the two films for this week, cinema's gone very try hard and it just seemed more authentic and organic in particularly American, the 70s American cinema. The likes, the films of the likes of uh, What's His Chops, director of A Prophet and Deepan and yeah, uh, Jack Odiard. Jack Odiard, they still have that essence to it. So I'm not saying it's gone completely, but I do think it's gone from American movies. Um, that sort of authenticity that these two films um, just thrum with. I would, uh, you would be talking about Mikey and Nikki first, but I would say like, this has got to be, this has got to be a perfect week, right? I'll give you my, do you want, do you want my scores now? Up front? Sure. So on, on Letterboxd, I gave Mikey and Nikki four stars. Oh. And I, I gave Friends of Eddie Coyle four and a half. 
Oh, okay. Well, you're a tough man to please. Those are high score. That's a high score. Okay. I give them both five. Four stars. I mean, a 10 out of 10. Four stars is eight out of 10. That's pretty solid. Yeah, I would give both these 10. I think they're just, maybe I'm just too more enthusiastic than you in general. I'd be closer for friends of it. Yeah, listen, I'm not giving away that many 10s. Okay. They need well, to do enough. a bit more. I also, Mikey and Nikki was made by a woman. <laughs> a woman? What's that from again? When somebody says a woman? I don't know. Now, let's have sex. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I know what that's from. <laughs> that's Logan's run, isn't it? Now, let's have sex. Have do I still have um, With uh, just push my opinions out the gate with um, Mikey and Nikki. I think, like, I think it's well-directed. The two boys together are obviously doing their shtick, but they're not in a, they're not in a Cassavetes movie. The, like, May really cares about where she puts her camera and stuff. But the main strength of it, it's just, I think it's just an incredible script. The sort of roller coasters it takes you on regarding plot. Two kind of scenes in particular that really just, just, I don't know. One was just a shock for the turnaround, and then the other was a very much an emotional turnaround that reorders your perspective on the movie and what you're feeling. And in the end, I thought, out of nowhere, I love when movies do this. And this, the other movie the, the, this week did it as well, is when a genre piece is actually something quite philosophical in disguise. So that's how I felt about this. Obviously, there's all the time travel aspect of, you know, Ah, oh, New York in the seventies. Look yes, at it, isn't yeah, it horrible? Yeah. Um, Which is great. I mean, but ho you say horrible, I think better. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's Authentic. just like it's so sweaty, and I yeah, you know. And like, when people open a can of beer that's got like a ring pull that <laughs> yeah, comes yeah, all yeah. the way off, like they're and there's I don't know. There's fantastic bits in this that just under uh, stereotypes you might have, like the interaction Cassavetes has in the um, <laughs> black bar. <laughs> I made the, a note of what he says because it's but, mental. But like fucking, you know, the first guy he talks to, he, what does yeah, he say? Yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, it's like I'm I'm doing you a favor. I'm doing you a favor, man. And he, he is doing he's him a favor. Chatting of the, he's chatting of the lady. He is. He's like, I'm doing. He gives him back the corner. He's like, man, I'm I'm really I'm doing you a favor here. Like, <laughs> can you go? Yeah. Anyway, what did you think? Go on. I found the first fifteen minutes or so of this film really, really frustrating. John Cassavetes in the Nikki hotel room is extremely annoying. Yeah, I wasn't mm. sure where the film was going, but I felt a little worried that it was going to be a two-hander locked entirely inside the hotel room. But as things went on, and as uh, May's script reveals the true nature of these characters to themselves, each other, and the audience, I was really moved. I think it's an incredible, it is very insightful. Moving, yeah. An honest portrayal of male behavior and relationships, which I think May absolutely nailed. And with yeah. Falk and Cassavetes in the in the lead roles, you can't really fail in keeping an audience engaged. And one thing I think the film does well is uh, Mikey and Nikki revealing their character through both actions and words and not overselling it to the audience. For example, when Mikey tells Nikki that he talks about his childhood with his wife, and that she loves his stories and the stories mm. won't die with Nikki. And then later we see him telling his wife a story about his childhood and she completely spaces out on what he's yeah, saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then Mikey goes on this insane rant about his dad and his watch, which the dad gave to Mikey's younger brother when the brother was dying. And Mikey That's says, so his, potent, he, Mikey that. says his dad probably did that only because the brother was dying, but I was a favorite. It's so sad, but it feels real. And if very uh, real. I, it just feels like the kind of thing I've heard before. I think everything Hopefully is... Hopefully not said before. 
I think everything in this, except for, I agree with you on the first 15 minutes, it's not that that doesn't feel real. It's just, I was thinking this was going to be completely set by just as well. And I wasn't too into that. Yeah, um, I, was, reminded, I was worried. It, I was worried. I was like, oh, this could be a long fucking road. Like at the same time, their interactions are, are like, are, are quite fun. And, but like, she sort of sets them up with two archetypes. Like he's fucking zany and crazy and, and whatever. Yeah. And Falk is, I don't know. Like responsible almost, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, very, uh, what's the name of that? Harold Pinter, the dumb waiter, very the dumb right, waiter. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. And then once, like, they get out of the hotel room, I mean, clearly he cares for him because he knows about his ulcers and, they, you know, such and such, but he doesn't trust him as far as he can throw him. So you, you feel like you're on this kind of comedy dynamic. Then there's the big reveal that, which is a, a, a gut puncher of a moment, uh, the big reveal that he's calling the hitman. I don't think that's a big reveal. I don't think there's remotely hidden at all. I think you can put that together. I don't think the film is trying to reveal oh, I disagree. That. I disagree. I, 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 I don't think so. I think it's very clear. I'd say it's like 75% clear from the first phone call that Falk is the one who's, who's Oh, calling. no, no, no. It's 100% clear from the first phone call. Then why but is there a reveal? That's because you've just watched them for the, fir for the first 15 minutes together. That's to me that like you're. But you've, I, what I'm saying is, I think other films would it would be a reveal, you know, like later just, on, just before the end, and they'd go, yeah, Aha, yeah, of surprise. course. Whereas this film is just saying, like, no, sure, you see his wife that. then jotting down the details yeah, on yeah, crayons yeah, and stuff, like, no, 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 no. It's a it's a reveal 15 minutes in, but it's a reveal like like that's it kind of because here's the thing is, first of all, you're you're thought to think, oh, he's going to look after his friend and get him out of town, and you're like, <gasps> he's taking out a hit on him, my God. Then they ramble on further through the night and gradually, 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 you come to appreciate what a fucking total bastard Nicky is. Yeah, I'm absolutely Just, delighted by the time he gets shot. I mean, Folk is a, not a great person either, but... No, he's not He's not great, but, but he's... But Nicky's like, an arsehole. But, I'll, but I'll, I'll tell you what I would say about, about Falk is like... <laughs> What's, oh, what, what are we going? Are we calling them Mikey and Nikki? Mike, yeah, sorry, sorry. So, so let's Mikey try. Is, we'll, go, we'll go characters. We'll go characters. Mikey is like kind. Of how he's like a Albert Brooks in broadcast news in the way. <laughs> he's done all the right things, but fucking nobody seems to like him. But yeah, like even yeah, from yeah. the start, you can see he's got a nicer suit. He's got a nicer jacket. He he's lives in a nice nicer house. Yeah. He's got a nice family life. It's and he seems. Yeah, yeah, his his son seems to love him. The other guy's a fucking mess, but at some at the same time, people can't sort of resist him. And the thing is, he's making an effort. He's trying, and then what a total cunt Nicky is culminates in that scene where they go over to the lady's house. And yeah, oh yeah, that's brutal. It's brutal to watch. It's it, it's very difficult again, to, to know how to interpret that in twenty twenty three. But I can, I mean, not twenty. I'm, but I've seen things like that. What the using of women in such a way? Yeah, or, or like people, people acting the dickhead. Maybe not to that extent, mm. but like. But uh, no, 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 like we've all we've all met a Nikki. To be fair, sure. But like then, right away after that, it's probably it's one of the best fucking scenes I can remember watching in a long time. It's so real. Is when he shouts at Nikki about like he's like fucking fuck you or whatever, and he said he talks about that time where he was sitting down in the restaurant with the boss and he made oh, yeah. uh, 
Yeah, I went up. There, I went up and I went to. Say, I said hi to you three times just because I would be too embarrassing to walk away without you saying anything. And then I walked away and I heard you make this joke. Oh, I forgot to order the clams off of that guy. He's like, that was a joke for you. That was a joke for you. And he fucking knows it wasn't. And then the yeah, the poetry of the just the fucking final scene and everything. I I think it like it, it, because that like. That shift from, oh, he's going to kill him. Oh, Nikki fucking deserves to die, and I hope <laughs> he dies. But at the same time, because the way Mikey would have arranged the whole thing, he wouldn't have had quite such a hand in it. But Nikki ultimately arrives at the door, yeah, and he's banging on the door trying to get into a domestic life. He's not really. He only wants in to save his fucking ass. Like that scene when he goes over yeah, to yeah, his, yeah. The, his uh, baby mama's house, which is just, again, it's, it's just grotesque. Because you know who he is at that point. You recognize yeah, him yeah. from your own life. Yeah, I, I found this. I suppose the, uh, such a high rating for me. Maybe I give. Maybe I do give out five too, too uh, easily. But just how often it surprised me until the end and then it moved me. I loved it. This was Elaine May's third feature as director. She did A New Leaf in 71 and then Heartbreak Kid in 72, both comedies. I've By this neither. point... She'd backed away from starring in her projects uh, in spite of being a huge star A huge star at the time. We talked a little about May and the Reds episode, a film which she co-wrote with Warren Beatty. She was a performer from childhood, mainly in a traveling Yiddish theater company, before getting married at 16 and having oh. a kid within a year, Jeannie Berlin, that's her daughter's name, who's also an actress and appeared in succession as Sid Peach. Oh, yeah, I know who that you is. You know who that is? Yeah. She was also in The Fablemans as Sp uh, Spielberg's grandmother. Elaine May moved to Chicago in the 1950s and joined an improv group. Her and fellow student Mike Nichols then formed uh, a double act and put on hugely successful shows in New York. When they broke up in 1961, Nichols became a Broadway and film director and May became primarily a playwright. Mikey and Nikki was the first film that really went wrong for May. She was labeled hard to work with slash very demanding and her films frequently went over budget. Mikey and Nikki yeah. was originally budgeted for around one million and ended up costing more than five. I the will famous, say this. The but, the what the yeah, it's got more three yeah, times more, more, more it was one point five million feet of film. Three yeah, times yeah. more than Gone with the Wind. That she might have over egged the pudding on that. I mean, film was expensive. Yeah, it's not like uh, it's not like nowadays. Fincher just leaves the camera running for his takes, and it doesn't cost that much more. You're not printing off feet and feet, millions of feet of film. I, I'm surprised, considering how many how many takes she took. I'm surprised that there was so much ADR. Like there were so many errors in the film. Just kind of really bizarre. Like one minute someone's got their hand up and then cuts back and dick, dick, dick. Huh. Um, I didn't I was, notice that stuff. You didn't notice that. I, I, no. The the ADR on the bus is some of the worst I've ever seen because they've got their act. The actors have their backs to the camera and they're having whole conversations, and then they mm. turn their head around and you can see that their mouths aren't moving. Son um, of a bitch. May's final film, Ishtar, was a massive flop upon release in 1987, and that was yeah, one of the biggest flops ever. The final nail in her coffin. I heard it's not that bad, though. No, I've heard that, too. Who is it? Uh, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman? Is that it? Definitely Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty off. Yeah, nice. Dustin Hoffman. Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, never seen it, um, but interested, too. It's got a nice front cover. There's a camel. I saw that. Desert and a person. Looks good. Okay, so the plot of Mikey and Nikki. Mikey and Nikki are gangsters. We know very little about what they do, but Mikey lives in a very comfortable, gated neighborhood with his wife and child. 
Nikki, on the other hand, has recently been kicked out by his lady, who he has a very young child with. The film starts with Nikki in a seedy hotel, having a bad time of things due to a contract having been put on his head by his and Mikey's boss, Resnick. What do you, what do you understand of what they do? They're gangsters. They're just connected but guys. Um, what are they doing? Like, I, if Fox seems to be in a kind of a Bobby Bacala role, you could say. In that, like, everybody likes uh, Nikki more clearly, but look how well yeah. Mikey is set up. And look at the fact that they said to Mikey, you got you to gotta find and arrange a hit on your friend. And he does it because he's a connected um, guy. Is Mikey the guy who, Mikey brought Nikki in, right? Yeah. Right. And the film makes no attempt to hide the fact that Mikey is frequently on the phone to Kinney, a hitman who's been hired to take care of Nikki. Mikey takes Nikki out to a bar where they have a heart to heart. They end up after that in uh, a black a bar with <laughs> black patrons where Nikki says one of the wildest lines I've heard for a while after one of the patrons says, we might be black, but we're not dumb. <laughs> Nikki goes, how come you're black? Which <laughs> he almost gets his head kicked in. Uh, uh, but yeah, but, but everybody they, everyone, thinks everyone they're cops because it's yeah. 1976 and they're in a black bar. I have a couple of things at this point. First of all, in the first bar, they're drinking beer and milk. That was okay in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies. You could go and just have an. Well, also, Falk, or sorry, Mikey goes out at the start to get like a huge amount of half and half. He goes to like oh, a attacks local cafe. He attacks the guy. It's fantastic! In the I love that. Give me the goddamn milk and the cream. Goes fucking ape shit on the guy. And then um, uh, it's just it's like a movie set in a Tom Waits song. Yeah, it's, it doesn't seem the most realistic. And, I'm just uh, glad that Tom Waits doesn't sing over the top because I'm still scarred from One from the Heart. You don't like Tom Waits? I don't like One from the Heart. That's fair. Do you think Cassavetes looks like a young Anthony Bourdain in this? He reminds me of um, Filippo Fico, the <laughs> Italian comedian. The comedian. Who we may huh. know, yes. <laughs> That's niche. That's a niche reference. Indeed, it is niche. So they leave the bar and get on a bus. Nikki ends up in a fight with the driver, played by M. Emmett Walsh. Yeah, the hitman uh, who from won't, uh, Simple. Yeah, who won't let them get off the front of the bus. This is after Nikki has already lit up a cigarette and is, again, behaving like a complete arsehole. And Does he show open. that lady his willy? I, we don't see it, but he, that's what's hinted at, yes. Yeah, yeah. He gets He's his like, unit out. What, yeah, what does she say? Your element, you're, you're, out, you're out to your element or something like that? Something like that. And he goes, how She's about like, I take my out element. my element? You want to see my element? All right. Uh, this film reminded me of another Peter Falk film at times made, the John Favreau, Fins Vaughn Swingers follow-up. I've never seen that. Oh, you should watch it. I, I would recommend it. Peter Falk plays like a mob boss and he employs Favreau's character and like Favreau's, he likes Favreau and then Favreau brings in Vince Vaughn and Vince Vaughn is a complete arsehole. And I like the sound of that. That sounds really and, fun. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's got some classic moments, but it's also from 2001, so it might have aged horribly as a comedy. But but yeah, so like Vince Vaughn is basically Nicky. Funny, but funnier. An arsehole, but funnier. They get off the bus at the cemetery because Nicky wants to visit his mother's grave, and they spend a lot of time reminiscing about childhood as they've known each other for 30 years. There's a lot of good character work in this section. Yeah, this scene is like, I mean, they're, it's, they're doing a, a few scenes out of a French New Wave movie, like you know, yeah, yeah. in the middle what of your gangster you film, die? just just ex existential chat. Yeah, you think if any, we're if anything, be nothing when we die. 
You know, the thing is, as well, I get the feeling in this scene that Nikki knows Mikey has is working to get him killed. Yes, I would agree with that. He seems to he always that seems to just be just under the surface that he knows he can't really trust Mikey. Mm. He doesn't trust anyone and he's an arsehole. So fuck him. After yeah, exactly. That, they go see Nikki's lady friend, Nellie, in what, again, is another pretty dark scene. Nikki has sex with her after telling her that he loves her repeatedly, and then he sends in Mikey and things don't go well. Um, she ends up slapping Mikey, and, and uh, yeah, it's pretty fucked up. We got a real insight into Nikki's country here, as he calls her a slag for having slept with a bunch of guys he knows, but in reality, those guys were ones that he'd sent to her after yeah. he told them that she's easy. I think it's, again, is like, I think May has a good insight into that. Yeah. It's not something I can think of having seen that frequently, but I think it does capture quite a lot of yeah, it does. how men interact with women in a lot of situations. Out on the street, they have a huge argument. Nikki smashes Mikey's watch, uh, family heirloom oh. given to him by his father. I mean, fuck him at that. I just literally shoot him in the face at that point because, I mean, that's bang out of order. And that's uh, what he moves to do. He wants to, because Mikey's dad put that watch in his ass. I carried that uncomfortable hunk of, yeah. Nikki goes to see his wife and child in a heartbreaking scene which feels extremely real. The last time seeing loved ones before your inevitable death. Yeah. At the same time, Mikey teams up with Kinney, the assassin, to drive around the streets looking for Nikki. Eventually, Mikey goes home to his wife. In the morning, Nikki's banging on the door to be let in, but Mikey tells his wife to tell Nikki that he's out. And while they barricade the door, Kinney drives up and shoots Nikki to death. Hallelujah. The end. Yeah. Anything else to add in there? No, just the... Yeah, and the, the, I think we mentioned all those just moving scenes, particularly when he's talking about his younger brother who died of um, whatever he died. Some scarlet fever. Yeah, scarlet fever. Scarlet fever. Johansson. And how all his hair fell out and uh, he had always wanted to... And the, the fact that the wife never knew it, but Nikki knew it. And it's like... Because, you know, it is kind of about sort of, there's many elements that it's about. It's a lot about saying goodbye to your past or, 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 or you know, to, that's probably way too uh, glib to put a point to put on it. But that like that aspect of it, like Nicky is in a way sort of the last link to his father, you know, because his yeah. father said he always liked Nick. And then, and it's, I don't know, it, it, like it's, it is. I'd say a quintessential example in my book now of when a genre movie takes you somewhere you did not expect to go. Mm -hmm. I expected bad things from the first 15 minutes, as in, like, I thought it was going to be painful to watch. I was I was already looking at the clock going like, oh, man, this is but you know, this is going to be bad. But it it flew by for me. It carried me through. Mm. It's a type of film that I actually got more into as it went on. Because I realized, I mean, following these characters and I was getting more invested in their shenanigans and in Nikki's eventual death. Peter Falk is a okay. tremendous losing his temper with the door and the coffee guy. Yeah. I you mean, can, they're, bo they're both just fucking... It, it, the script is good enough that they don't just completely dominate proceedings, but they almost dominate proceedings. They're just so fucking good. It's funny with Falk because I can, if I think back to my childhood, I'm like... That's Columbo. Columbo. Yeah, yeah. He's, but only Columbo. I yeah, had no had this concept whole other that he'd done life. anything else. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. why would he be talking about that? He is literally Columbo and nothing else. I didn't One realize question, he was such a good uh, actor. Well, Columbo obviously was, you know, how he paid his bills properly yeah, yeah, for fair, many years. Fair play. 
But the, so I was watching these two boys and I was thinking, do actors come from the theater anymore and make it big? There must be some like, there must be actors coming through like a, there are, there definitely are. I, it doesn't that, um, what's he called? Papa Esidu. He's in, um, what's that new show he's got? He was in season two of The Capture, I remember. He was like the politician that was, they were trying to fuck with. He was in I May Destroy You. He oh yeah, was, I know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah, he's got a new, he's got a series out called uh, the Lazarus Project. He was in Gangs of London, a bunch of other stuff. He's but like he's, a proper, he's like a Shakespearean guy. He's like Royal uh, Royal Shakespeare Company and all that stuff. So he's hmm. definitely theater first and then TV and film. So there must be a bunch of other people like that. I just don't know who they are. I guess they're not big, big yet. But he looks like he's going to be a big deal. I've seen the Lazarus Project. It's very good. Is it? I was, yeah, I recommend think that checking might be that out. On, yeah, I think that might be on my street just from, because I know it's like a time loop thing. Very much so. Of. All about All right. the time loopies. Let me tell you a little bit about some of these casties. Pure Falk, Kabumbo, Lost His <laughs> Eye, Age 3. What was that from? Kabumbo. Don't do Kabumbo. <laughs> I don't know. I think it might be from Black it Books. Made me laugh. I think it's something that, What's the main character called from Black Books? I think that's a Bernard thing he Black. Does. Yeah, Bern, Bernard Black. Still Martin. Columbo lost his eye, age three, to retinoblastoma and wore oh, no. a fake for most of his life, because of which he received a lot of rejections and auditions throughout his career. I didn't know he had a fake eye, Pierre Falk, but apparently so. I mean, you can. I, I noticed during the film, I was like, he's making a lot of weird facial expressions. I thought he just had a lazy eye, but it was so lazy, it was dead. Fogg tried joining the military towards the end of World War II, but was rejected for his ocular issues. So he ended oh, no. up in the Merchant Navy instead. In oh, 1948, yes. <laughs> he had a great time in the Navy. In 1948, he was desperate to get over to Israel to fight in the Arab-Israeli war. But by the time he found a boat to take him, the fighting was already over. Topical. If only he were, if only he were, if only he were alive now. Later on, he spent six months working on the railroad in Yugoslavia. Nice. They needed he, that. He also applied to the CIA, but was rejected for being a union member. The union in question being the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, which he joined in the Merchant Navy. A bunch of commie gobbledygook. Yep. They just don't make them like this anymore. Fogg received no, two no, best... No. no actors have lived a life before no. acting. These are, I mean, he worked in a fucking railway in Yugoslavia. Folk received two Best Supporting Actor nominations, one for Murder, Inc. in 1961, and the other one for uh, Frank Capra's Pocket Full of Miracles in 1962. Don't know why they're those. I ain't seen neither of them. Cassavetes, nothing to say. We talked about him before in Killing of a Chinese Bookie, I think, and maybe something else, a legend. Yeah, Dirty uh, Dozen, maybe. Ned Beatty, we've talked about multiple times recently. This came out the same year as Network and All the President's Men, so this was very Quite much a Ned the, year. Year, uh, the year of Beatty. Someone on Letterboxd well, said... Be, the year before that was the year of beating off to Ned Beatty. That was Nashville. No, no, no. And also um, Deliverance. Deliverance, yeah, 1972. Wow. Sweet. Well, okay. Oh, yeah, well, this came out in 76, though. Oh, right. Uh, someone on Letterboxd said he paved the way for Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's a bit mean to Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> you never heard I Philip know what Seymour they're saying. Hoffman oh, squeal. You see, you can be a fat guy and be an actor. That's what they're saying. Like This guy's a bit um, messy. Nowadays, this role would be played by Jesse Plemons. That was me. Honestly. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Jesse Plemons is the modern Ned Beatty. Yeah. I bet Jesse Plemons is slightly interesting in real life. Yeah. He's great. Don't say Meth Damon again. Carol Grace. 
as Nelly, the lady, the lady friend that they have relations with. Carol Grace. Yeah, it's Grace. funny because Peter Falk uh, particularly refers to her as like a, a hot piece of ass. Whereas like, I don't know, maybe it's from 2023 or maybe it was the way it was cast in the day. I know, I know what like, you're saying, yeah. She looks like a weird, lonely woman. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. Well, Carol Grace, uh, a.k.a. Carol Matow, as she's maybe more commonly known. She was married to Walter Matow from 1959 to his death in the year 2000. Ah, luxurious. So you were just, you are fucking having a go at old uh, Walter Matow's wife, his lady. I'm sorry, Walter Matow. Carol Grace's mother was a Russian Jewish immigrant to New York and single what mother. Was she, what was she in such a hurry for? <laughs> yeah. She, I don't know. She, she was couldn't slow it down. A single mother who gave birth to her at sixteen. As a result, Carol Grace. I'm just going to call her Grace from now. How on. many mothers gave birth to her? Just know it's her surname. Just one. Her single mother gave birth. A single to her. mother. Oh, okay. <laughs> her single mother. Her mother, who was single, gave okay. birth to her daughter Carol, surname Grace, who was placed into foster care. She never knew her dad. I'm still talking about the daughter here. Never knew her I dad. I didn't need. I didn't even know Australian <laughs> beer companies provided for children like that. That's correct. That's what foster care is, correct? She never knew her dad, but her mother her mother claimed it was British actor Leslie Howard, who was killed in 1943 when BOAC or BOAC Flight 777, a civilian airliner from Lisbon to Bristol, was shot down by the Luftwaffe off the so coast of So she's basically like uh, Arthur Fleck from Joker, but in place of... Bruce Wayne being the fake dad that the mad mother makes up. There's some British actor. Carol Grace was alleged to be the inspiration for Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, I read that. That's I don't have any more information about that. The next actor is your favorite of all time, William Hickey, who played um, Sid Fine. He was like one of the other guys hanging around with the big boss, Resnick. He's got a really okay. recognizable face, very distinct he was nominated for an Oscar for a role in your favorite film, Pritzi's Honor. He played Don Carrado. Don Carrado Pritzi. I did not like Pritzi's Honor. Yeah. Sanford Meisner, who played the, the, big, the big bad, the big boss man, Dave Resnick, creator of the Meisner technique. Meisner's big thing was the reality of doing, like Dustin Hoffman running around the block before the acting Dear Boy line. That was a Meisner thing. Because the other, the other, the um, Strasbourg and all the yeah, yeah, that's all the the sense memory, affective memory thing. And um, Meisner's technique was more towards the like you need to you need to become a cobbler, Daniel, in wherever in fucking nineteenth century Italy. The list Who are you of, talking to? <laughs> I'm, t- I'm talking. I'm talking about Daniel Day Lewis working as a cobbler uh, in that very did he famous play a film. Anime. No, but he worked as a cobbler because it was real. Cause it was doing you don't remember that thing of him working as a cobbler no no i do yeah but i always think you like you think I he was just doing it for fun and for like shits and giggles i thought he was I doing think it he's an eccentric I, I know he likes to make things uh he made like um he makes tables and shoes also apparently yeah uh, well you know what i say to that cobblers oh, cobblers the list we of students yeah i know the list of students who studied under meisner is impressive i'm talking scott can I'm talking David Duchovny. I'm talking James Franco. Hey, there was a there's a little anecdote about Meisner that like someone sang in on one of his classes. It was all about getting a reaction out of people where they had to say their line, and one of the things was Meisner putting his hand up inside the lady's blouse 
and like tickling her and that's how then she said her line like reacting in a real way and i'm sure if james franco was there he was taking copious notes after that <laughs> like so you can touch their breasts yeah, if so you're teaching molest. them last okay fascinating the last person is the most important of all, Joyce Van Patten, who played Jan. That was Nikki's lady, Nikki's wife. Okay. I'm going to say wife. From 1973 to 1987, so while she appeared in Mikey and Nikki, she was married to director Dennis Dugan. In 1996, Dugan changed the face of American cinema when he released his magnum opus, Happy Gilmore, a five-star motion picture. Nice. The end. Happy Gilmore gets the five stars. Of course. That's one of nice. the... I think on Letterboxd, there's about 50 films I've given five stars, and one of them is Happy Gilmore. Oh, I've been far too generous with my five stars. You made me feel I should be more snooty. Should I be more snooty? Should I change who I am to be cool? Yes, you should always change who you are to be cool. To be cool. I okay. have given, out of 1,800 films, I have given 85 five stars. That is 5%. I have given him him I'm just going to interject 126, this. four and a half stars. I, I actually did, forgot to include in my what I've been watching yeah. the, the the thing that gave me the most reaction this week. Have you seen this clip of this comedian? He's a British comedian who's talking about the popcorn trick with the cooking uh, YouTuber. I did. I watched it's another film of him uh, getting someone to pronounce the name of an African country. Niger, yeah. Uh, man, that uh, like you know comedy better than me, but have you seen that done with the popcorn gag before? Because it just made me laugh so much. Something similar. I've seen someone do like a like a little twist on that, but not that. You, that was quite funny because it comes with a physical. Uh, the physical movement of it was just incredible. <laughs> Maybe what's he called again? That guy. I can't remember off the He's top. He's followed head by now. quite a few people. I know. Uh, that clip has really blown up for him. I can understand. Oh, nice. I, I like John Spillane, enemy of the show, sent it to me, and I, I text him back. Quite, I was just like, I, that might be the funniest thing I've ever seen. Finlay, Finn Taylor, Finn Taylor's Finn Taylor. his name. Check out Finn yeah, Taylor yeah. on Instagramy. But I, I was dying of volcano-like, uh, volcanic diarrhea yesterday, and that made me laugh between spurts of hot shit. I could literally see you doing that popcorn thing. I can imagine you, I can imagine you, I mean, I can imagine you doing, no, I, I, yeah, I mean what I say, I can imagine you doing it. Have you imagined me doing it? <laughs> yeah, I often, every night, and every day, and every other minute, I imagine you doing that popcorn trick. All right, what did you mean by that? You can imagine me doing a joke like that? I could see that that's 100% your sense of humor. I think it's good, I think it's funny, but like mm. that... That strikes oh, it me is. as, it's like, that's you. That's like a crystallized form of, oh, what you, of what you believe. Not just comedy, but politics and everything. I think it speaks to your soul. I mean, it's quite like, like it's quite, it, uh, it's kind of a norm joke almost as well. Yeah, just yeah, the, yeah. the I complete, think so. that, I think that's why. U-turn of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's this weird episode of the Norm podcast where uh, Tim, uh, Tim, what's his, Home Improvement? Tim uh, Allen. Tim Allen is on and you know the way Norm does the joke readings at the end yeah uh, so he goes uh, one of the jokes he reads is scripture says do not uh, covet your neighbor's uh, wife but it doesn't say a damn thing about your neighbor's husband and his sweetheart fucking asshole like that and Tim <laughs> Allen is just like what What are you saying <laughs> anyway anyway Mikey and Nikki I can't believe you had that ready 
You're welcome. How many All stars? Right. So you, wait, you're you're sticking to five stars then? Yeah, I'll give Mikey and Nikki five stars. I thought it was excellent. So, uh, friends of Eddie Coyle, what did you make of it? I think the quality of this film made me reevaluate Killing Them Softly even more negatively. Ah, okay. Go on. Because I think if Andrew Dominic had got rid of some of that heavy-handed political stuff and those music choices, we would have come way closer to something like Friends of Eddie Coyle, which is obviously is like written by the same... What's the name of the yeah. writer? Uh, George uh, Higgins. George Higgins. I just think this is a much cleaner and crisper like example i don't know it, it really surprised me i was like from very early on as the the first um heist is kind of building up mm. i was again it was like okay they don't make them like this anymore it's a really no and they never would film you've got to pay attention for this you Absolutely. won't know what the fuck is going on the y- you don't know who's who except by paying attention you don't know who's who until each person has had probably particularly like let's say somebody like the cop you don't know he's a cop straight away you've got to figure it out through his his mm-hmm. actions and the yeah i i thought this was i mean i, I think it's i preferred it to mikey and uh, nikki also and i really wasn't expecting to because I, I liked mikey and nikki so much but like i was just uh, saying previously that idea of a genre film just emerging as something else entirely it's really on the head with this one because first of all you're kind of, I bet fucking David Simon loves this movie, by the way. I would I would put good money down that this has influenced the way he writes because you have to pay attention or you're I not going to a, get anything. I think it's a shame that this is like, this is it's one of those films that's popular with critics and, you know, f- film nerds and stuff like mm. that. But I are like, you know, yeah, I mean, other filmmakers and people who are super into film, but it's not one that seems to have any mainstream recognition or anything whatsoever it's really obscure and it's fantastic on almost every level you would be looking for the direction is great all the performances are 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 great there's like a a tight script there's wonderful dialogue that like really informed the sort of stuff that was being produced in the 90s like cool but natural like the way that you figure criminals would actually talk yeah and the, and like of course like Higgins was a former prosecuting attorney and apparently his novels were famous for being like just chock full of the, it was the dialogue that really set them apart apparently mm. but then buried in the middle of all this coolness in what like you know you have these sort of crime movies have you ever seen Pusher the Reffin film Winding Reffin his first movie I think so it's been a long time so it's just about a, str- a street drug dealer who ends up losing a bunch of uh, drugs and he's owing money and he's just bantering around doing nothing. Um, and you can kind of, you know, there might be a message coming and you can kind of tell what it is. It's it's going to be a sort of a, you know, this person thinks he's going to learn his lesson, but then he gets his easy break and you, whatever. Basically, because of the way Friends of Eddie Coyle opens, it disguises itself. It opens with this um, bank robbery that's actually very in line with the way its director opened his most famous film, Peter Yates, a director of Bullet. Very similar pacing, very similar odd soundtracks that people were doing in the 70s, that sort of funky guitar stuff. But then, so you, because of the way the heists are filmed, I suppose, it, it, it distracts you in a, in a way. And then I didn't realize until maybe two thirds of the way through that it's a real sort of an existential take on the kind of 
twee old dictum that crime doesn't pay, but you're watching crime not paying after a guy who's just done a lifetime worth of it. Yeah, Mitchum is looking rough. Yeah, like the title you learn is ironic because Eddie Coyle has it's no fucking friends. friends. Yeah, exactly. And like he's living in this world that, and actually that's little story he tells about his fingers getting broke. It really begins to make sense in the tone of the world because that's the only way a world like that can work. It's the only way people could do business because you can trust no one. You can trust nobody. We used nobody- to always... I was just going to say, like, we, we've always talked quite a lot about, like, how easy it must have been to do crime 50 years ago when there was, like, no no mobile phones, no internet and shit like mm. that. But, like, this film makes it look like crime was difficult because every fucker's, like, trying to sell you out. Because they're all criminals. <laughs> yes. Like, everyone is trying to, just, like, shave a few years off of their sentence. And I'd honestly put a lot of currency into the fact that Higgins was a, um, a prosecutor. Um, so he probably knew this world quite well. Like it's as a rule, you can't trust anybody. And it's also as a rule, and this is the glue that holds the world together, is that if you do something wrong, pain has to happen to you. It's like when he talks about his hand injury, the way they like the extra knuckles when he's showing the, the arms dealer. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I fucked up. So they broke my fingers and I knew they'd have to do that. And also it's, you know, at the end of the at the end of the day. When uh, Peter Boyle sells him out, he knows he's going to have to kill him because somebody fucked up, so somebody's got to die. Um, and it just so happens to be Eddie Coyle. And the thing is, over the course of the movie, you're watching Eddie Coyle. Eddie Coyle is sort of a middle-class individual with an actual a lady an who should wife. get more credit for putting on. An, a, she's, she's not Irish, you know yeah, she's I'm not, Yeah, she's, she's Scottish. Uh, yeah, but a perfect, perfect Irish accent. Yeah, yeah, she's um, solid. But I wonder how, I mean, she's from like just outside Glasgow, but I wonder, um, I, I'm assuming she probably had quite heavy links. I think she went to like a Catholic school. She might have like links to Ireland in her family. Anyway, Ro- Roger Ebert made comments that it's like it's unusual to have like a movie where the heist parts are the least interesting parts. Yeah. I quite like the heist, but I, I, uh, like he kind of said that they don't sort of matter in the movie, but I think they kind of do because I think he is trying to, uh, it's a bit of a Trojan horse of a movie to, you know, get in that, like, you know, it's got themes like those of the Irishman, but ultimately those of, you know, this is how crime doesn't pay because it sucks. It sucks being a criminal. It's awful. Everybody's trying to get everybody all the time. Everybody's ratting all the time. You know? Yeah, like Dylan Dylan is going to meet that cop every mm-hmm. week for twenty dollars. <laughs> yeah. Just, he, and he needs that. Like he desperately needs that. I know it's nineteen seventy three or whatever, but still, like twenty dollars a week from like, you know, tipping off a police officer. I wish I'd written down more of the lines because they're something else. They're like you know that kind of very fun, quippy dialogue from early Guy Ritchie movies? Yeah. They're like that, but realistic. They like but fit properly. violence behind it. Yeah, they fit properly in the characters' mouths. You're like, like and, and I love the early Guy Ritchie movies, but they're very showy. <clears throat> and this is not. And you get the feeling people actually talk like this. Um, yeah, I felt that a lot watching Richard Jordan, who played the ATF or the cop or whatever he is. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think he says, it says in the plot synopsis that he works for the ATF, but whatever, it's not clear. Like, when I think of Richard Jordan, I'm just thinking of Logan's run. <laughs> he's like, he's the, he's the second lead in, in that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. He had all, he's, all kinds of shite came out of his mouth. And then to see him in this, you're like, oh, no way, he's, he was actually good. Yeah, he's a really good actor. I think everybody's really good in this. Sure. Um, 
They've all got big fucking weird faces. Awful, <laughs> it's great. awful. Like so many people that are like Robert Mitchum is melting. There's a few people um, in this. They just look like they're they're definitely not well. And but like also, it's like this is another way way that it's all gone to shit. By the way, that it's all absolutely gone to shit. Like you would never, even if he was the right age, you would never see somebody like Peter Boyle in a movie anymore. An objectively ugly man in his youth with the biggest weird bald head. <laughs> I think he, he could was he was born and lived his entire life with that haircut, I think. He could have been in Coneheads without a prosthetic. Like he his should dome. have been in like some kind of, are he yeah, Coneheads, um a three stooges film, maybe he's something just, he's play just a insane scientist. looking. But then for anybody who's seen, have you ever seen Prime Cut? No, I don't think so. He's also very scary. Or Joe, have you seen that? No. Where he massacres a hippie camp. Um, yeah, yeah, like he's a scary guy. I think that was, was Joe was maybe his first film, I think. Because he only started like, I think he started in 19, oh no, he, he's got stuff going back to 1966. Joe's one of his earliest films. Anyway, yeah, I had great fun with this. Should we talk a bit of plot? Yeah, tell me what happens to these people. I look forward also to hearing about Alex Rocco. I hope you've got something to say about him because he's a psycho. Yeah, I do have stuff to say about <laughs> Alex Rocco. Okay, so we see the planning of a bank robbery. As I said, this movie makes you lean forward. You don't exactly know what's going on. You see some faces here and there. One of them is actually Alex Rocco. You got to concentrate. Um, actually, this method of bank robbery that they're about to do was copied, um, but the guy was caught almost immediately when the film was re-released on DVD. We, what was the thing we watched from the 50s that they didn't want to show the heist? Rafifi. Yeah, exactly. They were like worried that people were going to copy that. Anyway, yeah, the method in this case was copied. So the method is that they uh, hostage hold the bank manager's family, go to the bank, go in, go out. They've got point break kind of masks on. It's all very fun. Anyway, they get away with the money. And then we're introduced to Eddie Coyle, who is um, buying guns off Jackie for $30 a pop, which is mad. But anyway. They're just stealing them from the army, right? Something like that. They're nicking them. And he he tells him the story of uh, like how he got his fingers whacked through. Anyway, we also very soon learn about Eddie Coyle that he is going to be going away for about two years soon enough. Unless he can work out something with uh, this ATF agent called Foley, who's trying to rat on people for basically. It, uh, for It's for robbing a truck, something like that, for this uh, character Dylan, who uh, works in a bar nearby, this guy played by Peter Boyle. It's all very complicated. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> He is trying. He is trying to get off of that, so he's trying to collaborate a little bit. But he's got a limited amount of time before he's going to go in New Hampshire. One of the ways that he figures he can do it is get machine guns, get somebody for machine guns. And the cop says, "For machine guns, I could make a call to the judge." So Coyle goes off and tries to set up Jackie to sell some machine guns. Or no, he doesn't try to set him up. Basically, Coyle. How to go again? Yeah, Jackie ends up selling uh, some machine guns or arranging the sale of machine guns to some damn dirty hippies who live in a van. And then there's another robbery again, but this time there's a shooting because some fucking dumbass presses the alarm button. Press the button. Hasn't he watched like a bunch of films from the 90s? Why would anyone do that ever? The money, we're, we're not here for your money. We're here for the bank's money. Your money's yeah, insured. Your money's insured by the Hasn't federal, he watched federal government. Hasn't he watched it? I've watched well, it this year he probably get twice. time machine and watch heat from the future? Um, Oh, God, if people go through my letterbox, the amount of repeat watching is probably embarrassing. 
I I haven't got, gone but I haven't retrograded it. But if I did, I've probably watched Heat twice this year. But anyway, who I cares? Would, I'm tempted to watch it again now. That's neither. It's so good, Andy. It's so fucking good. Anyway, yeah, we see the robbery again. Guy gets shot, so obviously the cops are more on them following this. And then uh, Coyle picks up more guns off of Jackie and realizes, ah, oh, he's going to make a, magi- a machine gun sale. And so he tips off. He tips off Foley. Foley heads along, arrests Jackie. Jackie knows immediately that uh, it was Coyle. Coyle. And then, uh, but it's it's actually, it turns out it's not enough to get uh, Coyle off the hook. So he says, okay, I can hand over the guys who did the robbery, who he's just visited in their trailer last night. And this guy's got this super young girlfriend. And he says uh, this line that made me laugh. He goes, well, first of all, he says, uh, get the man a beer, which, man, I wish I could say that to my wife. And then the other thing he, he says is, gets hot down here. So she just walks around with no pants. Oh, yeah, that's like a, um, Alex Rocco's character. He's, yeah, he's yeah, doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, he says he he, sa- he was a real one. He says he can tip off, he can tip them off for the bank robbery. Um, And then Foley says to him, ah, nah, too late. We already got that sorted. You're grand. Anyway, they've already arrested the guys. Turns out That's we learned it was a sad scene. That's a sad scene yeah. of him thinking he's bringing this amazing thing to Foley, and Foley's like, "Yeah, oh, you could have used that. Yes, you could have used that yesterday." And then Dylan, he ah, Dylan, this creep, what a dick. So he yeah. says, so Coyle goes in. He's drinking at this bar, pounding whiskey and beer, and he says, "Why don't you come back later? We'll go to a Bruins game. Then it's fun. We get to see what a hockey game was like in the seventies. That's Number actually four, interesting." Bobby Orr, and the greatest uh, there ever was. Coyle is just there getting progressively drunker and he passes out in the back of the car as they're driving away from the game and they just shoot him in the face, dump him in another car. And then Dylan reports back to uh, Foley, who doesn't seem to care too much that it was probably Dylan who killed Eddie Coyle. And then they just walk away from each other and credits roll. Very existential, very just, this is how it is, sorry. Albert you Camus could have written this. You see how that would piss audiences off. They're like, Peter Boyle just walks away. Yeah. It's like if Nikki lived at the end of the other film and Mikey died. Yeah, but I suppose that's kind of the, like the point is the, the movie the the movie's trying to make, you know? Um, I've only got three guys uh, to speak about here. Even though they all have interesting faces, there's not too much detail about their lives. So let's start with Mitchum. Did quite a bit of the American dream. Immigrant parents. His father got squashed on a railroad thing. Construction side got squashed. And then he got expelled from loads of schools. Ran away. Ran away from school at uh, uh, from home at 14 and on the road at it for a while. Respect. Was like a professional boxer taking up odd jobs. Met his future wife when he was 16 and she was 14 while he was on the road. Got word out to uh, from uh, his mother had moved to Hollywood to become uh, an actor. So he says, "Okay, I'll go out and do that." So he go. He went out and did that. Then the war started. He went and became a a machine operator, uh, but it gave him an awful lot of stress. And he came back uh, from that and got into got into acting. And actually, also, yeah, when he came um, when he came back from service, he went back to where he had met his wife, his future wife Dorothy, on the road. And uh, he proposed to her, married her, and uh, despite like a probably people reckon a couple of affairs here and there, who didn't back in the day, he was very luxurious, and uh, you know they stayed together on, right up until his death. And he said, uh, "Yeah, all the broads don't hold a candle to Dorothy, etc." That's a nice story. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a nice story. I think. 
Then uh, another thing that happened to him was he was arrested for smoking reefer with uh, a lady in 1948. Got 43 days prison, but then got the sentence remitted because it was they 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 were able to prove it was a setup. They'd set him up for smoking smoking the reefer. Oh man! But he was a lifelong smoker and drinker. And in 1982, he um at a premiere for one of his movies threw a bat at a reporter. <laughs> he was playing a baseball coach in the movie. Not like he a, threw... a flying bat. No, no, he threw a he threw a bat at uh, a reporter, a female reporter, and knocked out a bunch of her teeth. <laughs> and, uh, it was fine back su- then. She tried to sue him for thirty million dollars, and he said, "Like that, pretty much was my pay pay from that movie gone." Can't believe he made that much money from the film. I'm sure he didn't make that much money oh, from the film that's in like 1982. About 10 films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten thousand films for him. Anyway, and then there's the one other thing that he said when. Uh, Somebody asked him in an interview, do you think the Holocaust happened? And he replied, so the Jews say, uh, which he later apologized for and said it was it was in jest. He was he was having Wasn't a he quoting like a film when he said that, though. I'm or not he sure. He said something else and he was quoting uh, he was quoting the film that had come out around that time. OK, fair enough. <laughs> it was uh, a film about Holocaust denial and he wrote it now. So another guy I want to talk about is uh, Richard Jordan. Now, do you know about Richard Jordan? Well, I think we might have talked about him back in the uh, the very, very early days of the podcast when we watched Logan's Run, and that's like oh. in the first 10 episodes. But no, we didn't cover his later successes. Uh, he's more recently started a YouTube channel uh, called uh, The Critical Drinker. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> that's great. That's Will Jordan, is it? That's Shite. Right. That, that joke well, doesn't work he, at all. What a, what a, <laughs> yeah, he, I remember when he joined the Chicago Bulls and became one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Oh, there we go. Exactly. Oh, no, that's, that's Michael that's, Jordan. That's Michael. Yeah, okay, so talk about Alex Rocco, who uh, played, of course, Mo Green in The Godfather, probably most famously. He was born honest, in Massachusetts. That was the only thing I've known him from ever, apart from this now. There you go. Born in Massachusetts. Served uh, in uh, the Korean War for a little bit. But then uh, he got into some criminality stuff. So, yeah. In January 1960, Petruccione was one of 28 persons indicted by a Middlesex County grand jury in a gambling case. And in September 1961, he was arrested, along with James McLean and others, on charges related to an assault on the owner of a diner in Somerville and the wrecking of his establishment the previous August. Now, this kind of stuff doesn't stop here. He was associated with the Winter Hill Gang. Do you know who, do you know who they were? Yeah, that's uh, the gang that eventually was run by Whitey Bulger. Exactly. And during the making of uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle, uh, Eddie Coyle was looking to hang around with Boston gangsters and asked to um, meet Whitey Bulger and... Rocco, uh, Rocco reportedly said to him, you don't want to meet that guy, uh, which kind of ties up to Bulger's reputation of gangsters didn't really like him so much because he was just such a scary psychopath. But Coyle even, allegedly... even when um, even when Whitey Bulger was like in his 80s, after he'd been caught during his court case, he was getting into like a screaming match with the guy who had like fingered him. <laughs> and by fingered him, I mean pointed I him out. Yeah. Uh, he was like, like he was in his eighties, and he's like screaming at him, going like, "You fucking rat!" I'm just yeah, surprised so that he was that cogent for that long. The tenacity. 
Okay, yeah. He was also arrested on suspicion of murder following the death of Bernie McLean of the Charleston mob. Um, He was working as a bartender at the time. And a witness claims that Petruccioni was the driver of a getaway car and he and McLean were formally charged in the slaying uh, in November 1961. And then they were released after a grand jury found lack of evidence, both served a prison term for the diner wrecking. And in 1962, while in prison, his wife's car was bombed. Police believed the bomb was intended for Howie Winter, head of the Winter Hill Gang, who had driven the car to her earlier. The Winter Hill Gang was sending a ton of weapons to Ireland, I remember. They were big IRA supporters. They were indeed, yeah. Bulger was big on that. Then uh, he left it all behind. He moved to Los Angeles and got into the Baha'i faith, which is a religion. I don't know, do you know much about it? But it was made for Hollywood. Yeah, it's, uh, what's his name? What's his name from the Rain US Wilson. off? Rain, Rain Wilson. It's his, yeah. it's his religion. He's the face of that religion. Yeah, yeah. he's there, Tom Cruise. That's, yeah. That shows the stature. <laughs> <laughs> Oy. Anyway, that's about all I have to say about poor old Ro- uh, Rocco. Yeah, Alex Rocco, legend. I'm just surprised. I didn't. I didn't know anything about his criminal past. To me, he's like he's the guy who played Mo Green. He was in a couple of like sitcom and TV stuff, like a couple of things later on in his life. But I had no idea that he was basically like a murderer when he was a kid. Yeah, actors used to live lives. Yeah. Now what? Now all we have is like fucking what's his name? You know, from uh, Adam Driver, because he was in the Marines. Right, he's, about, uh, he's the realist of the real working class actors nowadays. Barry Keown is actually real yeah, enough. He's, look true. up his backstory. He's a, he lives, he's a he lives in Scotland now. He lives just outside Dundee with his wife. Fair play. Fair play. I wouldn't do it, but fair play. <laughs> I mean, you kind of are doing it. Well, not outside Dundee. I'm not in Broughty Ferry. That's where they live. Broughty Ferry? Is that a nice that's, that's place? That's a place. It doesn't sound like it, does it? I think it's actually okay. But that's just, it's just where she's from. The thing is, he grew up in like group homes, so I'm sure he's comfortable anywhere. <laughs> I think he's He's great always ready to be chibbed, like, you know, and he'll that's chip fair. you back. Well, he's in the right place, Dundee. I was going to go watch Saltburn, but uh, I just couldn't bring myself to pull the trigger on it. Uh, Johnny Spills, enemy of the show, is a big fan of Saltburn. Mm. I think it looks, um, I think it looks like I won't like it that much. But I like I don't like unrealistic partying in movies because I've done a lot of partying. Yeah, you know what I mean by that. Yeah, like I I know you mean like the world's most fun party where everything is over the top and insane. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, I know. What like, you mean. E- yes, I don't like I don't like Hollywood style film parties that have never ever happened like that. Like even um, what would you even when Skins came out back in the day. I it would like because everybody was watching it and uh, I was yeah it just kind of put me out of it a bit because I was thinking yeah the, it's fun when they're all partying together in rooms but then when they go to a ridiculous party at somebody's house and there's just a hundred people there and it's yeah. uh, I, it just yeah that does bother me and this movie looks like all that all the time how did you feel about her first film Promising Young Woman did we not talk about that on here you, I don't think we, t- you watched it and I can't remember what you said because I, I don't know if I ever talked about it after watching it. I really enjoyed it, but mm. I just wish that she'd been able to do what she wanted and cut the final minute or two. Remind me, what happens? She gets murdered. Okay, spoilers yeah. for Promising Young Women. I remember the plot. The main character, but- she gets murdered and you think that the guy's got away with it, which would have been a perfect ending. I mean, 
it's 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 uh, a tough one because I think probably women watching the film were like they kind of wanted a win at the end, but the most realistic thing is actually just a guy getting away with it, and that's the end. But then she set up like a fail safe, and it sends a bunch of text messages to people while they're at the wedding. Going, ah, yeah, like, I remember. Uh, you know, this everyone's a dickhead, and that, she didn't want to have that originally. That wasn't the original plan. It was supposed to end with her getting murdered, and then maybe the wedding, and everyone is like just. <laughs> having a normal happy time hmm. but it would have yeah. been incredibly dark but i think it would have been way more powerful here's where i i remember how i feel about pro- promising young woman i think it's unfortunate it's probably something to do with the, it's a good thing i don't listen to film criticism uh anymore because it this is how it would have tended to affect me it gives me something which i could call i suppose the black panther effect which is everybody wanging on about it so much because they know the themes uh, and the points it's making are important that they overhyped the film a little bit uh, for me. So even though it might realistically be a five star, a lot of people gave it that. For me, it would probably yeah. be a four star. Four. Agreed. Yeah. Still not bad. Pretty good. It's no friends of Eddie Coyle. It certainly is not. There, do you know what the thing is? The, the, friends of Eddie Coyle has hardly any um, women in it, I think mm. you'll find. Mm. And, as, and the men are ugly. So there's yeah. not going to be any women. No one's promising. No one is young. No one is yeah. woman. And the only woman that you, you like is is uh, living with uh, Rocco. So you've no chance. And there's the other one who's in the car, in the van with the, there's a crusty hippie one. Yeah, the Irish one doesn't count, does she? <laughs> no. <laughs> Irish by way of Scotland. There's nothing remotely lady about her. All right, who's I, tossing? It's me to toss, sir. All right. What are you bringing to the table, fuckface? I'm a huge fan of Richard Aoyadiadiadiadi's uh, submarine, submarine, mm. and uh, I never watched his follow-up film, which I think is basically is I don't know what went wrong there because I don't think he's done anything. No, else he hasn't since, done anything which is since. Weird. 2013's The Double, starring uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, indeed. That's it. Oh, right. That's it. That's what you got. Okay. Um, I'm going to uh, try and fill in some of the blanks in Peter Bill Bogdanovich's uh, filmography for me. I'm going to put forward uh, what people saw as just a, a, a vanity project for his then-girlfriend, Sybil Shepard, 1974's Daisy Miller. Lovely. I hadn't even heard of it. There you are now. There we are now. Tea for everyone. <laughs> okay. Your choices are heads or tails. Let me go head. Okay, let's see what happens. It's going up in the air. And the answer is tails. You oh my God. lose and snooze. All right, what would I have won? Well, it was going to be director, which was Last Picture Show, or wow. writer. Have you never seen that? No. Or writer, which was the, innoc- writer was the Innocence, which is an adaptation of Turn of the Screw. So it's yeah, the same very good author also. as Daisy Miller. An actor was going to be Sybil Shepherd. I was just going to do a rewatch of Taxi Driver. So you almost want a rewatch of Taxi Driver there. Oh wow! Okay, I've decided to. I've I've decided uh, to um to go the same route and give you three options. Oh, I'm very excited by this. But I'm going to be a bit more cryptic than you. Fine. You can have it from the title, mm-hmm. from the source, or for the completest. Okay, I'm going to say completest. No. What was that? Because I'm not choosing it. Or do you want behind to do the, the reveal? Do- that? That door was submarine. Okay, good, because I've already seen it. So what's this, source or... Title. Source is going to be like Camus or someone. I'm going to go title. We are watching Double Impact. <laughs> the fuck is that? 
Not like a Jean-Claude Van Damme film or something. That is a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I, do you know what? I'm delighted that it's something different. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, it's the one with two Jean-Claude Van Dammes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm de- I'm delighted you went for that as well. I was uh, <laughs> because the source was going to be another Dostoevsky fucking right, adaptation I can, I can from the seventies. It was. It was someone like that. What was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. What was the Dostoevsky one? Uh, uh, like white punishment or something. No, White Shades, the uh, Visconti film. Oh, Martin Scorsese right. loves it. Well, I would have happily watched Submarine, but I've seen it a few times, so I'd much. I've never seen it. You've never seen Submarine? Oh, I can't believe no. you're watching Double Impact instead. Submarine's great. It's a great film. Have you seen it? Have you it, seen the double? Double Impact? No, 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 the double. Have you seen the double? Um, No, I haven't. Okay. All right. Well, fine. I'm really looking forward to Double Impact. Double Double Impact's in English and Cantonese. I wonder if one of the Jean-Claude Van Damme speaks one language and one the other. How long is this? Do you know what Double Impact made? It made double its budget. That's oh, uh, that's oh. pretty good. It cost 15, made 30. Yeah, the muscles from Brussels used to carry the one, box It's office. about two, it's two brothers. One of them is called Alex and the other one is called Chad. Nice. <laughs> this could actually be the best thing that anyone has ever seen ever. Yeah, I'm very excited to watch this. Um, I might watch Submarine too. Have we just but run like, out of good films? Is that the problem? No, no, I just thought it would be funny to... It is funny, uh, it is funny to put these two things together. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, in that case, Submarine is good, you're saying? Submarine is a great film, and I would highly recommend watching it. It's very, very good. It looks so twee. Is it very twee? It is a bit twee. It might have, it might have aged badly, but it's got, good, it's got Noah Taylor in it. What's his yeah. name? Craig, Craig Roberts. That was his big breakthrough. The music's good. It's um, what's Alex Turner. Name? Alex Turner. Yeah, Alex no, I, Turner I, the, th- the thing is, I was like, I was thinking, if... Like, it would be nice if sometimes my wife could watch the films for this podcast with me, but like this week... She would have liked Submarine. She would have liked it. Yeah, exactly. I I knew she would have liked Submarine, so I did throw it You should watch Submarine too. If you like the... I mean, I have no idea if the double's any good, and probably it's nothing like Submarine, but I'd recommend throwing Submarine in too. No, everybody was going on about it a lot, but I just remember at the time it came out, there was a lot of films that looked like that. I know what you mean. It does have a very Wes Anderson. It looks like it could be quite annoying. My memory of it is that it's good, but I haven't rewatched it for ages. I mean, you get you have a bit of faith in. Uh, in the thing is, uh, I'm well, Richard Ayadi. And plus, I like I'm not. Most of the time, I actually do quite like Wes Anderson. It's just the idea of him that bothers me. I saw that um, that guy you were talking about earlier, Finn Taylor. He's got a video of it's a Wes Anderson spoof on his Instagram. I, I watched that. I had a quick look back through some of his videos. Did you see the thing he the, about Rishi Sunak? No. Oh, it was very funny. They're like um, after uh, Liz Truss fucked up the economy. They were like, "Oh fuck no, we need a we need a prime minister who looks like they know how to do maths." <laughs> Anyway, anyway, that's all I got to say about that. I am, yeah, I'm going to go downstairs and uh, maybe uh, watch an episode of The Shield. Good choice. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, until next week, folks, I love you. And you too, Andy. Bye. Bye.